We will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, so please uh, turn there in your Bibles and join uh, with me. First Corinthians chapter 15, we will be reading verses 1 through 11 and spending most of our time through verses uh, 1 through 8 this morning. The Holy Spirit, through the pen of Paul, writes this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this morning, for another day, another Sunday you've given us where we have gathered to worship the risen Lord Jesus. We sit under the word now and we will sit under the table as the people who have received and believed and stand in the gospel. And we do so only by your grace. I pray you would bless the word this morning and that you would encourage us. You would encourage us with the hope of resurrected life. And that if there's anyone here who does not believe that you would confront them this morning with the risen Lord Jesus. I pray all these things in the name of our risen Lord Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. In 1992, Disney released its classic motion picture, Aladdin. Aladdin provided us with a story of love and hope for a brand new world. The love story kicks off where Princess Jasmine is deeply troubled because she is being forced to marry. And even worse, she is being forced to marry a prince rather than someone she truly loves. See, Aladdin, after meeting Princess Jasmine and obtaining a hilarious genie, uses or seeks to use his three wishes, seeks to use his three wishes to make her fall in love with him. Part of Aladdin's scheme is to uh, abandon his lowly status, to abandon his lowly status and pose as Prince Ali Ababwa. Now, Princess Jasmine, in meeting Princess or Prince Ali Ababwa, now seems to finally have met her match. 
Aladdin brings Princess Jasmine on a magic carpet ride that we all know too well. We are left with one of the most memorable Disney scenes of all time, and you know what I'm talking about. As the two sing their hearts out, their longing gives way to a whole new world. They cast a vision of what they perceive to be a better world. A world where the old has passed away and the new exceeds expectations. It is a world where love wins. They sing words such as a whole new world, a new fantastic point of view, no one to tell us no or where to go or say we're only dreaming. A whole new world, a dazzling place I never knew, but when I'm way up here, it's crystal clear that now I'm in a whole new world with you. This morning, church, I want to put forth in front of you this biblical reality. Since Jesus has raised from the dead, the world has never been the same. And as you think through that internally, I want you to ask yourself, what does the world that you long for look like? It is my deepest conviction that the new world in which Jesus has inaugurated and will bring to completion upon his return has drastically reshaped the world that we live in. You see, Aladdin and Princess Jasmine longed for a whole new world because ever since Genesis 3, humans have naturally longed for restoration and a peace to come. For, the, for some, this whole new world looks like unleashing an unbridled autonomy. For some, this whole new world looks like exerting political or economic or cultural power. Wherever you find yourself this morning, I can promise you that you innately understand what Princess Jasmine and Aladdin are singing about. Because we buy into stories. We buy into narratives because we long for a better future. We understand that we ourselves are living in a story. Church, I want to step back and instruct you this morning that Paul writes to the Corinthians to address divisions among them. And he does so calling them to unity. A call to be unified in the resurrected Lord. Earlier in this letter, Paul reminds us that what he proclaimed to the church was Jesus and him crucified. Jesus and him crucified. If you don't get the gospel right, you don't get any of it right. In the next several moments that we have together, I hope to present to you the risen Lord Jesus who was attested to by the scriptures and has been seen by many so that the Holy Spirit will either regenerate your dead heart or will encourage you to rest in the whole new world of his present and coming kingdom. Now put another way, Jesus Christ, in accordance with the scriptures, has risen from the dead, remains alive, and will never die again, bringing with him a whole new world. Bring your eyes back to our passage this morning in verses 1 through 4. And what we see is that the scriptures attest to the resurrection of Jesus. 
The gospel, brothers and sisters, is everything. Paul, writing with the hope of unity, reminds us in verse 1 that the good news was preached to Corinth, just as it was preached to us. It was preached, and they received it, and they stand in it. And those that will continue to get saved will get saved by the gospel. Pastor Alex, this morning in our class, just beautifully walked through the way in which God sovereignly chooses people and then goes and sends his messengers to get them. The gospel preached saves people. The gospel is everything precisely because as Paul warns, if they cease to hold fast to the gospel, their belief is proven to be in vain. Here at Christ Community Church, we stake everything we do here on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Verse 3 tells us that the gospel is of first importance. So we gather every week to hear the word, to receive the sacrament as those who have heard the gospel. As those who have believed the gospel and by God's grace, those who are standing in the gospel. That's why when you come to the Eucharist, we sometimes will warn you if you are not trusting in Jesus but have grabbed the elements, we would beg you, put them down because you are not standing in the gospel. And we stand in the gospel by faith alone. This is what we talk about every week when we explain what faith is. Knowledge, assent, and trust. The Corinthians heard and understood the gospel. They believed the content of the gospel, and they walked in the gospel. They believed in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul's call to unity uh, is even present. He believes they're brothers and sisters. He's, not call, he's calling them back to a reality that they've walked in. They knew, agreed, and gave their lives to the gospel. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Now, as we look at 1 Corinthians 15, I want us to uh, take note that this is the longest discourse in all of Scripture on the resurrection explicitly. And it is here where Paul begins this discourse by placing the gospel at the center. Indeed, Paul reminds us that the whole gospel hinges on the historical reality that Jesus died and was raised. Our faith is many things, but it is nothing less than a historical faith. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, our Christian faith, brothers and sisters, is futile. Jesus died and rose again, and these two truths, in accordance with God's holy word, are demonstrated by the proof of his burial and the eyewitnesses that saw the risen Christ. Jesus Christ was attested to, and Jesus Christ was seen. And Paul reminds the church at Corinth that even among their divisions, what should reorient them is the truth of the gospel. The gospel grounds them. And our lives as Christians ought to be lived out in unity among one another in the church with the gospel as our centerpiece. Political affiliations and elections, sports teams, career opportunities, your children, financial stability, none of 
these are of first importance. None of them. The gospel must be preached. The gospel must be received. The gospel must be lived. And where doctrine is divorced from practice, brothers and sisters, what is revealed is a counterfeit faith. So as we pause to think what is the gospel, let us look back into verses 3 through 4. So what is this gospel, this good news in which we need to anchor our lives in? Paul tells us that it is this. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, if anybody comes to you preaching a different gospel, I beg you to run as far as you can. Jesus' death was for our sins, or we are left guilty. Pastor Andrew beautifully showed us last week how the death of Christ was for our sins, for our salvation. Jesus was buried as proof of his death. And Jesus' resurrection was his victory over sin, death, and the grave. Jesus is alive now and forevermore, holding the keys of death and Hades in his hands. This is either true or you have no hope for future life. This good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection gives us hope. And the whole chapter 15 bears this out and teaches us that we have hope in the resurrected life in his kingdom through his resurrection. These truths, I implore you, are worth staking your life on. One thing that I have found as a hospital chaplain, many of you know I serve as a hospital chaplain in the community, and one of the things I have found uh, both in uh, my, my three years of experience as well as uh, my doctoral studies is that when you suffer, when real suffering strikes, your faith shows out. Sometimes it anchors you and sometimes it cripples you. Even then, Jesus is big enough to carry you through your pain. When you have been pushed to your limits, when you fear death, or even when you are left stunned at death around you, church, hear these words. Christians can face death like no one else can. Like no one else can. And it is because it is, it is not because of the strength of your faith. Our faith is often weak. But it is the strength of the object of our faith, which is our unwavering and conquering King Jesus. Christians can live and die with the hope of resurrection because Jesus has been risen. Contrary to those around us, we do not believe death is the end because we know one who has come back from the dead. Our hope is not anchored in abstract thoughts of bliss, but is anchored in a whole new world that has broken into the present and one day will be culminated in Jesus' return. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is alive. Paul says in verses 3 through 4 that Jesus' death and resurrection were in accordance to the scriptures. And we may ask, what does he mean here? 
For one, I want us to take note that Jesus fulfills his messianic role as Israel's anointed king who dies in the place of sinners. We can look at verses in Isaiah 52, Isaiah 40, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 and 37, Daniel 9, Hosea 6, as we read in our call to worship this morning. Or we could look at, as one commentator pointed out, uh, of the righteous man who suffers throughout the Psalms. And we could see that all of these point to ways in which Jesus' active and passive obedience was lived out, being Israel's Messiah and sacrifice. Pastor Mike Shampoo walked us through Jesus' active and passive obedience and how Jesus' sinless life helps us, how we have Jesus Christ's imputed righteousness. And before or in case you are hesitant to employ a Christ-centered lens to all of the scriptures, I would uh, implore you to look back at the way the early church read the scriptures. They preached from the Old Testament as the New Testament was being shaped because when they looked at their Bibles, they could see nothing else but pages drenched in the majesty of Christ. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was attested to by the Holy Scriptures. And it was also attested to by those who believed in him, trusted in him, and have seen him resurrected. To these accounts, let us turn as you look back into our text, and we're going to spend the rest of our time here in verses 5 through 11. As we look at verses 5 through 11, we have here in front of us what I believe to be some of the best evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Over the past decade, I have studied philosophy and apologetics and theology and continually find myself coming back to this very passage. For some, there is no greater, no greater obstacle or challenge to their faith to believing in the Lord Jesus than their own experiences with the church. And if we're honest and we look around the globe, we've seen the church wreak havoc on people's psyches, leading to mass suffering. We don't have to look far even in our own country to see the sins of abuse, uh, racism, bullying, and how all of that has plagued church history. And on the other hand, I do believe there is no greater witness to the gospel outside of the Holy Scriptures and then the very birth and sustainability of the church. So as we think of the church being born and being sustained, I want to pose the question to us, and it is, why is the resurrection so unique? Why is the resurrection so unique? For one, the idea of someone resurrecting in the middle of human history was not common belief amongst Jews. Uh, They believed the resurrection was to come at the end uh, of human history. Uh, Not only was it um, uh, really unfathomable to the Jew as someone resurrecting in the middle of human history, it was also uh, appalling for Greeks and Romans. Unexpected and undesirable. You don't make up the resurrection in the ancient Near East cultures. You don't. Like It's a non-appealing idea to, to virtually everybody. And yet, why does the resurrection hold? 
Why does this unexpected, undesirable idea hold and reshape the world? I do uh, think that there are few passages uh, in scriptures that really ought to prick your conscience and stir within you uh, a sense of reflection as this passage that's before us. Really, whether you believe me or not. If you are trusting in Jesus, uh, this reflection really ought to lead you to thankfulness. Jesus has chosen to include you in his whole new world. And if you do not believe the gospel, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead and in the fullness of time will return, then this passage still ought to make you pause. If Jesus did raise from the dead, and was seen by all of these people that he claims to have been seen by, then it is imperative for you to sort out for yourself who Jesus was, who he is, and who he forever will be. And even among those who do not believe in the supernatural inspiration of the Bible, uh, there is zero doubts that the Holy Scriptures are historical documents. That is like a common denominator we can all agree on And when you take the New Testament documents with the response of the early Christians and their changed lives, one ought to stop to pause and to wonder. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, what in the world actually happened to start all this? Those who claimed to have seen the resurrected Christ, I would argue, lived differently. And they lived differently, as one writer put it, because they could not deny what they knew to be true. They had seen the risen Christ. Before them, the risen Christ with their own eyes. You see, the gospel longing that seeps into the depths of Scripture following the first bite of fruit all the way through Abraham's tears as he walks up the mountain From the weeping of Jeremiah and the cries of David's songs, the gospel longing sought after a better day. God's people were promised through the covenants that God would rescue them from the curse, from the stain of sin, from suffering, and offered the promise that death would one day die. So when Paul tells us that Jesus was raised in accordance to the scripture, he is showing us that Jesus is a conqueror over sin, suffering, and death. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is encouraging Corinth that even among their divisions, they are called to be unified. They're called to be unified because Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, they too will share in his resurrection. Guys, life is before them to live. So be unified. Stop fighting. Stop rebelling. Remember. Remember the beauty of the gospel and the way that it nourishes you. Jesus is alive. We have seen here that Jesus was attested to by the scriptures and that he leads, uh, he leads us uh, to this passage showing us that there are eyewitnesses who bore Uh, witness to his own resurrection. And I want to look through this list uh, for the remainder of our time. So as we now jump here into verse 5, draw your eyes to this first name, and it tells us that Jesus appeared to Cephas. 
Cephas, or as we commonly will, will know him as Peter, uh, and, and I will refer to him as Peter from here on out, um, is the first one listed. Uh, one intriguing thing about the list here is that Paul's account does not uh, seem particularly consistent with the gospel accounts, or at least on the surface. John Calvin addresses this in his commentary on 1 Corinthians when he notes that Jesus first appeared not to Peter, but to the women. We know from Luke 24, 34 that Jesus did appear to Peter, so we know uh, that, this, that Paul is not stating a falsehood, right? That Jesus did, appear, did indeed appear to Peter. But what I believe is that Paul is not intending to uh, list a chronological order of witnesses, per se, but rather he is seeking to display these witnesses in a strategic way. Paul is displaying that from the closest companions of Jesus to the crowds, the resurrection was no secret. Paul includes Peter first, which I do believe in some ways does highlight uh, the influence and the importance in which he held in the early church. And let's make no mistake, Peter was indeed one of Jesus' best friends. As you sit and, and, and read that Jesus appeared to Cephas, think of your own best friends and the highs and the lows uh, and the different experiences that you guys have gone through and the intimacy that is held. You see, they shared undoubtedly many high peaks and undoubtedly very low valleys. Cannot help but think of Peter as the rooster crows the last time and he sees Jesus and is left weeping bitterly. Or even as Peter uh, himself in John 20 uh, sees Jesus on the seashore and flings himself into the water and runs to his Lord, racing as it were. You see, Peter is well known for constantly having something to say. He always has something to say. You know, Peter is also said to have gone on to die for his faith. And while Paul's own interactions with Peter move from reverence to rebuke, it is important and essential that Peter is listed here. Peter was viewed as a crucial part of God's plan in spreading the gospel in the early church. And here Paul does ensure us that Peter attested to the risen Christ. You see, Peter knew Jesus. He knew Jesus. You know, some have argued that uh, the followers of Christ did not, the followers of Christ really did believe what they claimed to have seen. They really believed what they claimed, but nonetheless were deceived. They're said to either have hallucinated their visions of Jesus or been confused but Jesus was not resurrected. It is said that they were distraught, that they uh, were grieved, but Peter was not a bystander who could have misunderstood or hallucinated. As someone who knew Jesus intimately, he knew Jesus and saw him walk for 40 days on this earth. Peter could not have hallucinated or could he? As we continue in our list today, we see, uh, as verse 5 concludes, that Jesus then appears to the 12. 
Luke 24 and John 20 are both examples where uh, Jesus appears to the 12. So we uh, see this from other parts of the scripture as well. Uh, The 12 disciples of Jesus do stand in continuity with Peter as those whom Jesus lived his remaining years with. And one crucial element to this passage uh, is that the 12 are still around. The 12 are available to be spoken to. The 12, by this point, were a known group. They were a known group that was representative not only of Jesus' inner circle, but those who had witnessed and followed him during his ministry. The 12 here, for some, are seen uh, with the later term, uh, the apostles, in verse 7, uh, as overlapping groups. Some have argued in, in more liberal circles that this is just a pure error. It's a pure error of the scripture because we know that Judas by this point would have died uh, in 12 minus 1 is 11. And Jesus appeared to the 12 and aha, we got you. The Bible has errors um, is one argument. Interesting, uh, also some people will counteract that by saying by this time Matthias would have been in the fold and Matthias is present among the 12. And so, you know, checkmate, we got you back. This is the 12. Some will argue that the 12 is, again, a representative uh, term that is speaking to the disciples. Uh, It would be almost like if I told you my kids are here and really I had uh, given my sweet Elise to her grandparents and she was not here. No one here, I believe, would say, Brett, you are a liar. Your kids are not here because one is gone. Again, you intuitively understand the term I'm using, my kids, is representative of the group. So while we reject the uh, error in the Bible, whatever opinion you, you, however you want to interpret that, um, use discernment and the leading of the Spirit, either way the point remains the same. Jesus appeared to his disciples. As we continue on down the list, look at verse 6 with me. It says, Then he appeared more He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. You know, again, as we mentioned with the 12, and as you'll see a recurring theme throughout uh, these witnesses, is what is so intriguing uh, about them from a historical standpoint is that they are present, right? Uh, Almost um, unapologetically present. This is perhaps even more challenging to the skeptic when he thinks that it is uh, easy, relatively easy perhaps, to convince a small group of people to uh, believe one thing. It is an entirely new thing to convince 500 people to corroborate the exact same story. If Jesus had not raised from the dead, Paul is making an absurd claim. And he is an even poorer ambassador for his cause, knowing it to be false. To be honest with you, if Paul uh, knows that Jesus has not risen, uh, he really probably ought to have stuck to the original uh, arguments that Jesus' body was stolen. At least here, Paul would have a he said, she said argument in front of him. Room for debate, right? Agree to disagree. But no, Paul is inviting his hearers, both in the church and abroad, to go and hear 
from the witnesses. He even says, you, you can go see them because some are dead, right? Like this whole admission that some have died is almost to say, you can't have all of them, sadly, because some died, but they're still there. Like, go, go check. Go check. They are there, and they have an open invitation. Only the boldness of knowing, of knowing and seeing the resurrection of Jesus does that. Again, the challenge is posed to the skeptic are large. Surely we as committed Christians believe in the truth of the Bible. But if you don't, you got to admit this is a strange argument. Like, Why would you put, and at this point, hundreds and hundreds of people out there to be brought in, so to speak, and interrogated when they do not have the same belief. You see, the resurrection of Christ is not really historically easy to account for outside of the New Testament, which is a bit odd. In the Christian literature, obviously, as well. But yet it continued to shape the world as the gospel went forth. Why is that? Why is it that we have records of Jesus' death outside of the scriptures from people like Josephus or Tacitus, but when you look at the resurrection, we see far less? What we seem to be left with is his word and his church. And the assumption, brothers and sisters, that I come to is that Paul maintains is that if he, aren't, he is not to be believed, at least you can go ask everyone else. Could Peter have been hallucinating? Maybe. Could the 12, having uh, lived and ministered alongside Jesus with all the grief and love that they would have been working through, been hallucinating? Maybe. Could more than 500 people, some who even didn't have the same vested interest in the advancement of Christianity, all be hallucinating? simultaneously the same stories? You know, this is perhaps one of the greatest arguments Paul leaves us. Because people do not hallucinate communally in such coherent ways. Nor do people hallucinate communally in such coherent ways for, for 40 days. There must be some better explanation. But Peter, or Paul rather, does not stop here. As we look back into our passage, look at verse 7 with me. He says, Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. The James that is mentioned here in verse 7 uh, is not John's brother. Uh, and we know this because Acts uh, 2, 2 tells us that Herod of Agrippa has executed the apostle James. Uh, the James that is listed here is the half-brother of Jesus, who is, uh, who is a, a prominent leader in the early church as well. And what we see once again here uh, with Cephas and the Twelve and, uh, and now James is that Paul is pointing to us, showing us that Jesus uh, visited those whom he intimately knew, those who were leaders in the church. In Acts, it tells us that Jesus instructed his disciples during that time. 
As we look down to verse 7 at uh, the term that he visited, the apostles, uh, again, uh, there is some dispute here. Uh, John Calvin, for one, says that the term apostles referred to those who were assigned to preaching. And so whether Paul is using a redundant term to the twelve, or whether he is speaking of pastors more generally, uh, the general point I believe that Paul is still making here is that the resurrection of Jesus was no secret among the early believers. That all of those within the body of Christ knew that Jesus resurrected, whether you were his closest friends, the leaders in the church, or you were amongst the crowds that were coming in. As we look at the end of our section of witnesses here, from verses 8 through 11, Paul concludes with himself. Paul had seen the risen Lord Jesus. Paul, one of the most unlikely converts to the new religion and the new faith, stands himself as an apologetic of the faith. Paul was an up-and-coming man in his own right within Judaism, one who actively worked against the advancement of the gospel. And what does Jesus do? He stops him dead in his tracks. Stops him dead in his tracks. And Paul's language here in verses 8 through 11 remind us of his spirit of gratitude. Read with me in verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Read with me, continuing in verse 10. He says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You feel that? I am what I am, only by the grace of God. And he says, his grace toward me was not in vain. His grace toward me was not in vain. We can all with Paul affirm that we, all of us, are only what we are because the grace of God has found us. You see, these witnesses are rattled off to demonstrate to you that the tomb was empty. And history unanimously agrees the tomb was empty. Is it not curious that no one is arguing that Jesus' corpse is still rotting in the grave? There needed to be an excuse because Rome had no body to produce. Those following Jesus' resurrection were faced with a whole new world where they were going to either bow the knee to the new Messiah or they were going to find excuses to believe otherwise. Either way, 2,000 years ago, we have to reckon with the reality that Jesus' tomb was empty and the world ever since has been flipped upside down. The church exploded because the work of the Holy Spirit spread across the globe, impacting the lives of Christians everywhere. Alan Creter writes, when Christians offered the world not just theological statements, but embodied virtue, when they backed up their assertions, they attracted people who felt, irresist felt an irresistible pull to join them. Why? Because people saw this kingdom that Jesus was building and they found it appealing. The Spirit was opening their eyes. 
They were attracted by a world where the rich and the ruling class did not control things, but instead the poor servant king ruled with righteousness and peace. The Holy Spirit began working in their lives so that they could receive, so that they could believe, and so that they could stand in the gospel, as Paul expressed, was true of Corinth. We need, brothers and sisters, to be reoriented to the story of God's redemption through the person work, person and work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his disciples to go make more disciples. There was a kingdom, a whole new world that was being built, and the church was commissioned to go and gather these new ambassadors. The early church embodied what this whole new world would look like, and they, and they longed for Jesus to return. Jesus is with them. He was with them week in and week out as they gathered at the Eucharist. He's with us now. And we long for him to be with us physically. From the very beginning, the habits of the church saw orthodoxy, right doctrine, and orthopraxy, right practice, as being married together. When the church was born and began to grow, it did so empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so if you are here this morning and you have serious doubts, I would ask you to come talk to me. Come talk to one of the pastors here because there are arguments for the resurrection. I, I have them. C come find me. I would love to talk to you. But no argument, no argument will be as compelling as the Holy Spirit working through the preached word. No argument will be as compelling as the Holy Spirit working through the preached word. Why? Because as Alex showed us this morning, people are saved by the preaching of the gospel. Romans 10, when it says that the feet of the preacher are beautiful, it is not because they are aesthetically pleasing. It is because the feet carry the gospel across the globe to build Christ's church. My prayer this morning for you is that through my words, through the reading of the scripture, through the singing of songs, through the, through the witnessing of the table, that you will encounter the risen Lord Jesus today. You know, once the church was born, this world has never been the same. Never. Whether it is the idea of individual rights, whether it is the invention of hospitals, systemic care for the poor, the desire for even formalized educational institutions, and on and on and on the list can go. Christians have taken their belief in the resurrected Christ, their longing for the kingdom of God, and lived that out faithfully by God's grace to produce all of these things to better our world. Empires have risen and fallen. Institutions have risen and fallen. Worldviews have risen and fallen. But brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Still, 2,000 years and counting and forevermore. Aladdin and Princess Jasmine saw their ability 
to have one another as shining, shimmering, splendid. But brothers and sisters, a whole new world is here. They sang, a dazzling place I never knew, but when I'm way up here, it's crystal clear that now I'm in a whole new world with you. And if only they knew. One day Jesus Christ will come again. And when he does, we will live with him forever in a whole new world without sin, without suffering, and without death. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we graciously come to your table with such gratitude. For you have risen, and we long for the day where we can do this with you, physically, bodily, in the new heavens and the new earth. Until then, let us remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. For when we remember the Lord Jesus' death, we remember his resurrection. Lord, I am done And I thank you for not only the opportunity to preach to this church, but I ask that your word would rain down on this people this morning, that they would hear the gospel, that it would seep in, and that it would grow faithfulness among them. Pray these things in the name of the risen Savior and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.